chapter 4, verses 17 through 23. Now Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, aside to me, have no fear. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skim of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. He said to her, Stand at the entrance of the tent, and if anyone comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. He was lying fast asleep from weariness, and he died. Then, as Barak came in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to him to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there was Sisera lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. The word of God for the people of God. Well, with all the the funerals that we've been having lately, I've found myself in a a number of conversations the last few weeks with with court streeters who just wanted to sit and talk and reminisce about court streeters gone by. You know, this week uh, I learned about Shirley Hawkins, our sister, who we placed in God's hands this week. I learned that as a girl in the 1930s, she would, she would walk from her house over to the church and she would take piano lessons from the, the church organist, a woman named Emily Hickson. And uh, Emily Hickson later got married to a Mr. Piper. Uh, that was Bill Piper's grandfather. And so at, at the funeral on Friday, I ended up in a conversation with Bill and he was reminiscing about Emily Hickson Piper and all of the people whose lives she touched through her music. Music. And then there came a moment as we were getting ready to start the funeral when I, I came forward and lit the candles. And, and every time I do that, I think of Allison Green, who until she passed away a few months ago, would, would light the candles at every funeral that happened in this place. And after I lit the candles, I ended up in a conversation with some people about, about Allison and how much we miss Allison Green and all of the ways in which she used to take care of us. And somehow this week I ended up in a conversation with a group of court streeters about Ruby Jean Butler. Do you remember Ruby Jean? I know many of you do. If you never got to know Ruby Jean Butler, then you really missed out. Ruby, Ruby Jean was one of my favorite church ladies of all time. Ruby, Ruby used to sing in the chancel choir, and every time she got up here with the chancel choir, Ruby would steal the show every Sunday morning. When, when Ruby would sing, she, she just radiated joy from her head to her toes. It was such a wonderful thing to watch her sing, sing to God on a, on a Sunday. And, and there was this story Ruby used to love to tell whenever I would visit with her. I found myself sharing this story with some people this week. It's a story about uh, Ruby's experiences during the Second World War. So, so during the Second World War, Ruby found herself living in the Upper Peninsula. She was, was working at a radio station in Sault Ste. Marie. 
And one day a man came into the radio station and, and he looked at her and he said, Ruby Jean Butler, America needs you. And, and this is how Ruby Jean ended up becoming part of, part of the war effort. Now, now the story goes like this. The, the government was afraid that the Japanese were going to try to sabotage and in some way attack the Sioux Locks. Now you remember that, that during those, those years, Detroit was known as the arsenal of democracy. In southeast Michigan, all of these factories were manufacturing tanks and engines and munitions and all of these things to, to supply the war effort. And all of the raw materials that those factories in southeast Michigan were using, all of that iron ore, it came down to Detroit through the Sioux Locks. The government knew if the, if the Japanese found a way to close down or sabotage the Sioux Locks, then the arsenal of democracy would grind to a halt. And back in those days, the, the locks were controlled by radio signals. And, and the government was afraid that Japan would find a way to sabotage the locks without ever having to, to place a boot on American soil. They were afraid that the, the Japanese would find a way to bounce some sort of a radio signal off of American radio towers, that they would send a signal that would in some way disrupt and, and, and do harm to the Sioux locks. And so, and so they recruited Ruby Jean Butler, and this is how Ruby Jean ended up spending the Second World War in a, a tiny cabin out in the woods in the middle of nowhere in the Upper Peninsula with a, a headset on her ears and her finger on a button. Her job was to listen to all of the radio signals that were passing through the air of the Upper Peninsula. Her job was to sit there and listen for any sort of a signal that was unusual or out of the ordinary. And if she heard anything that was, was unusual or seemed off, her job was to push that button and shut down the Sioux locks and stop those radio waves from getting through. My favorite part of this story, Ruby told me this story every time I ever visited with her. She loved to tell this story. My favorite part of this story was always the way that Ruby Jean would, would finish the story. Every time she told that story, at the end of the story, she would sit back and her chair and she would smile and she would say, and that is how I won the Second World War. <laughs> uh, like I said, if you missed out on Ruby Jean, you really, you really missed out. She was convinced that she had single-handedly won the Second World War and, and who's to say that she was wrong? Maybe she did. You know, stranger things have happened. Stranger stories have, have been told like the story in this morning's scripture reading. So this morning's reading comes from a dark and terrible time in the history of God's people, the Israelites. For 20 years, the Israelites were oppressed, violently oppressed by their Canaanite neighbors. And there was, there was one Canaanite in particular who struck fear into the hearts of God's people, a general who went by the name of Sisera. Now, Sisera was a formidable general uh, because he had mastered the cutting-edge military technology of his time. Sisera, every time he marched into battle, brought with him 900 iron chariots. Now, iron chariots were the, were the, the, the nuclear weapon of their time. Nobody else had them. The rest of the world was living, was living in the Bronze Age, but Sisera had made a discovery. He had, had found a blacksmith, a man named Heber the Kenite, who, who had mastered the art of creating iron weaponry, and so he Heber the Kenite made iron chariots and iron weapons for Sisera's army. And those iron weapons gave Sisera an edge in every battle that he marched into. For 20 years, Sisera ruled that part of the world unchecked. He defeated every nation that he attacked. He won every battle he took part in. He and his 900 iron chariots. He won battle after battle after battle until he became a legend in his own time. You know, people started telling stories about Sisera as if he was some sort of a, some sort of 
of an ancient Paul Bunyan. They told tall tales about his feats and his exploits. People said that, that one day Cicero went swimming in a river and he caught enough fish in his beard to feed his entire army, right? People said that his voice was so powerful that when Cicero shouted, the strongest walls would begin to tremble and, and wild animals would fall over dead. For, for 20 years, the Israelites lived in fear of this general Sisera and his 900 chariots. For 20 years, the Israelites wondered, can anybody, can anybody break this cycle of violence and oppression? Can anybody stand up and defeat, and defeat Sisera? And then one day God spoke. God spoke to a, a woman named Deborah. Deborah was the closest thing the Israelites had to a, a leader in that time. She was famous for her courage and for her wisdom. You know, people at that time said that Deborah was the only person in all creation who could hear the voice of Sisera and not be moved by it. And so when Deborah announced one day that she had received a message from God, all of the Israelites gathered around to hear what the word was that Deborah was going to speak to them. And Deborah stood up before all of the Israelites and she said, God has spoken to me and God has told me that God is about to deliver our enemy into our hands. And then Deborah called for a man named, named Barak. Now, Barak was the leader of the Israelite army. He was a man who was famous for his cleverness and creativity. For 20 years, he had survived skirmish after skirmish with a, a, a massively superior army that was, was armed with superior weaponry and technology. Sisera had lived by the skin of his teeth for 20 years. All of the Israelites had the deepest respect for him. Deborah called him forward, and she said, Barak, gather to yourself an army of 10,000 men and march into battle against the Canaanites. God is going to deliver Sisera into your hand. Go, go and collect your army. But in that moment, in that moment, instead of going, Barak hesitated. He, he felt fear within himself. He could see the confidence in Deborah's eyes. He could hear the courage in her voice, but he did not feel that confidence and that courage in his own heart. In that moment, all that he could think of was those 900 iron chariots. He knew that those 900 iron chariots were more than a match for 10,000 Israelites. And so instead of feeling courage, he felt fear. And Barak said to Deborah, he said, I will go, I will gather the army, and we will march into battle on one condition. He said, I want you to come with me. I need your courage beside me as we march into that battle. And Deborah, she paused. She thought about it. She listened for the voice of God. And then Deborah said to Barak, she said, okay. She said, I will, I will come into battle with you. She said, but you need to know that the path you have chosen will not lead to your glory. She said, God has announced to me that God will not deliver Sisera into your hand, but instead God will deliver Sisera into the hand of a woman. And so together, Barak and, and, and uh, Deborah, they gathered together 10,000 Israelites and they marched off to meet the Canaanites. Barak armed with his, his cleverness and, and Deborah armed with her courage. 10,000 Israelites behind them, they marched off and they encountered the Canaanites at the, a valley at the bottom of this mountain. And, and the two armies marched towards each other. And just as they were about to meet in battle, this, this mysterious and, and unexpected thing happened. Now, the Bible tells us that God threw the Canaanite army into confusion it's not clear exactly how God did that. It seems that, that just as the two armies were about to collide, suddenly there was a, a storm that swept down the side of the mountain. And there was a flash flood that swept through the valley. And, and in an instant, all of those 900 iron chariots became swamped, stuck in mud or swept away by the waters of the flood. The, the Canaanites were suddenly defenseless. The Israelites sprang upon them and they, they struck down the Canaanites. Every Canaanite was defeated. Every Canaanite except for one 
Sisera, in the darkness and confusion and tumult of the battle, crept away, crept away from the field of battle. He crept away through the darkness. He crept away until he came to the tents of his weapon maker, the blacksmith, Heber, the Kenite. Now, Sisera didn't go to the tent of, of his blacksmith, Heber the Kenite, though for some reason he went to the tent of, of Jael, Heber's wife. And you can imagine Jael's shock and surprise when she opened the flap of her tent and saw this, this legendary tyrant, this oppressor, covered in blood, soaking wet, standing at the doorway of her tent. Come in, she said, but it's not as if she had a choice. She knew she couldn't turn him away, so she welcomed him into her tent. This, this general walked into her tent, dripping gore and water all over the place. She wrapped him up. In a, in a carpet to try to keep him from making too, too big a mess. He flopped down on the floor, and then he started making demands. Bring me, bring me some water to drink, he said. And Jael, in that moment, she thought quickly. She said, I can do even better than that. She said, let me, let me heat up some milk for you. And so she warmed up some milk, and then she brought him a, a cup of warm milk. And as he drank that milk, Sisera felt the battle fatigue starting to creep into his bones. His eyelids suddenly got heavy. He started to, to drift off to sleep. And as he was drifting off to sleep, he made one more request. He said, listen, if anybody comes looking for me, if anybody asks if there's a man in your tent, tell them no, send them away. And then he fell asleep. Uh, we can't know exactly what was happening in J.L.'s mind as she looked at this, this general, this oppressor, this tyrant sleeping on the, on the floor of her tent. Maybe she was afraid. Wouldn't you be afraid? Maybe she was, was afraid. This man barges into her tent. This man barges into the tent where she, a woman, is there alone and starts making demands and commanding her to lie if anybody asks if, if there's anyone else in the tent. She understands that her life is in danger. She's in danger from the man who's sleeping on the floor of her tent. She's in danger from the people who are searching for him. Maybe in that moment, J.L. JL is afraid. But I like to think, I like to think that there's something else happening in J.L.'s mind in that moment. I like to think that as she looks at, at Sisera sleeping on the floor of her tent, she makes a decision that she has been working her way up to for years. I like to think that maybe J.L. was tired of being married to an arms dealer. I like to think that maybe J.L. Was, was tired of following Sisera's army around and having to watch what he did with the weapons that her husband made. I like to think that, that J.L. was tired of all of the violence, the cycle of oppression that she and her family were caught up in. And I like to think that as she looked at Sisera sleeping there on the floor of her tent, she suddenly realized that she had the power to bring that cycle of oppression and violence to an end. As she looked at Sisera, Sisera sleeping on the floor of her tent, she suddenly decided that she could not be neutral anymore. She decided that she was going to come down off the fence and choose a side. And so she looks around for, for whatever weapon is at hand, and she finds a, a tent peg and a hammer. And Jael knew how to use that hammer. Back in those days, setting up the tents was women's work, and so she had, she had a strong arm and she had a steady hand. And she took the tent peg and she took the hammer and she crept over to Sisera. She took careful aim and then with a single blow she drove the tent peg through his head and then anticlimactically the Bible says and he died but you knew that Maybe you've already guessed by this point why this story doesn't get told on Sunday mornings very often. Maybe, maybe you've already guessed why this story makes preachers nervous and we don't like to talk about JL. Of course, preachers have always been just that little bit uncomfortable with strong and confident women. We don't, we don't like to tell this story because we're afraid we're going to give the United Methodist women ideas, right? <laughs> Pastor Christie, she offered to preach this week. She said, let me, let me have the sermon on Sunday. She says, I'll give the women some tips on their hammering technique. I said, no, thank you. No, thank you. I've, I've got this one. 
And I have to confess to you, I have to admit to you that this is not my favorite story in, in the whole of the Bible. It's violent and it's gruesome and I have a hard time reconciling this story with, with the peaceful way of Jesus. And so I never preach this story. I never tell this story on Sundays. But, but I'm still going to say to you this morning, I'm convinced that if we can set aside, set aside our discomfort with strong and confident women for just a few minutes and, and if we can set aside our squeamishness about the violence and the gore of this story for just one Sunday morning, I do believe that there is an important and powerful message tucked away in this story, a message, a message that God's people need to hear. For 20 years, for 20 years, the Israelites wondered who among them was powerful enough to stand up to Sisera. They wondered which among the Israelite people could stand up and, and, and stop this cycle of violence and oppression. In the end, it turns out none of them, none of them were powerful to stand up against Sisera, at least not alone. None of them were strong enough to do it alone. Not Deborah, with all of her faith and with all of her courage, could put an end to the cycle of violence and oppression. Not Barak, with all of his cleverness and creativity, could put an end to the cycle of violence and oppression. Not 10,000 Israelites marching off to battle were strong enough to put an end to the cycle of violence and oppression. In the end, only God was able to put an end to the cycle of violence and oppression. And in the end, God chose to do it by using the most unlikely person imaginable. God put an end to all of that violence and oppression by using a woman who wasn't even an Israelite. God used a woman who was armed only with some warm milk and a hammer and a tent peg. God used a woman who one day earlier the Israelites would have called their enemy. In the end, God did what God always does. God used the least likely person to accomplish God's purposes. And this is why I believe that the message at the heart of this story is very simply the thing that we affirm every time we say together the words of our Court Street Creed, no person is insignificant. No person is unimportant. Every person has a gift to give and this world needs every one of those gifts. This world right now, caught up in another cycle of violence and oppression. This world needs every person to come down off the fence and offer their gifts. This world needs every one of us to start teaching piano lessons and lighting candles at funerals. This world needs the gift of every person who cares about peace, who cares about hope, who cares about God's kingdom coming into this world. We need the gifts of men and we need the gifts of women. We need the gifts of Christians and we need the gifts of Muslims. We need the gifts of Israelites and we need the gifts of Kenites. We need the gifts of Jews and we need the gifts of atheists. We need black gifts and brown gifts and white gifts. We need the gifts of straight people and we need the gifts of gay people. We need the gifts of every single person in this world and only, only when we truly understand that every person has a gift to give and the world needs every one of those gifts, only then will we see God beginning to act to end this cycle of violence and oppression and peace finally flowing into this world. Let's pray. God, we pray. God, we pray that you would give us the courage the courage of Deborah. God, we pray that you would give us the creativity of Barak. God, we pray that in this moment of violence and darkness, you would give us the, the cleverness and the quick thinking of a JL. God, move us to come down off the fence. God, move us to get off of the sidelines. God, move us, move us to raise our hands and start offering our gifts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.